0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. You need to prepare yourselves to be fired. This is one piece of advice that I got from one of my favorite professors when I was in seminary. He said, All of you just need to prepare yourselves to be fired because in this line of work, in the pastorate, it is pretty rare for someone to go their entire career and not only just not go from one church to another at some point, but usually not by your own choosing. And he went on to talk about being financially prepared. And he said, you know, if you work as an accountant and you lose your job, like there are multiple accounting firms in that city But if you're a pastor and you lose your job, not only do you lose your job, you lose your place of worship and most of your friends and all of that, but it probably means that you have to move, like you have to change cities. So your kids have to change schools and all of that. There's a lot goes into it. And he said, so what you need to do is be prepared, you and your partner, by having six months of both of your salaries saved up in the bank that you can get to really quickly. And so we spent the rest of the time on the hot seminary topic of financial management. And when I started working, like, that's what Rochelle and I did. And it was really tough. Matter of fact, when I, I, when we first got married, Rochelle was still in graduate school at the University of Texas. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. And I was working in youth ministry, so there wasn't much to save like and so we started like chipping away chipping away little by little by little so we would be prepared because i had a professor who said prepare for the day that you will be fired and then one day years later i woke up and i was fired and i was prepared financially for it as a matter of fact the church at the time did a lot of things for us so that we would feel the economic impact a little bit less. It was 2008. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. The bottom fell out of the economy. But I was devastated because I was financially prepared for it. But what I didn't know and what I didn't know to be was spiritually and emotionally prepared for it. Like, I am not a crier. Well, I wasn't a crier for most of my life, and then I had daughters. (laughs) My Rochelle will tell you, there were times, like immediately after being fired, that I would just be in tears, like in the middle of the night. Years later, when... I started studying the, the Enneagram. My, my teacher who I apprenticed under, Suzanne said, like, you are so fortunate that you had a big public failure early in life. And I told her I would have preferred to not have any failures anytime in life. But looking back on that now, like what I realized, the thing that I learned is that I thought what I did, how hard I worked, what I accomplished or didn't accomplish, really said something about my worth. And that's why I was devastated. And so if you've been around Ecclesia for the last four weeks, you know that we have been talking about work and vocation and how to handle your work, whatever it is, wherever it takes you, in a distinctly Christian way. What has God invited you into? What gifts has God given you? And it would be naive for us to think that something as important to our lives, something that we spend so many hours doing it, Monday through Friday, eight to five, or whatever your schedule is, something that we spend that much time planning for and preparing for, going to school for, that takes up so much of our time and energy, we would not be wise to think that something like that could trick us into believing that it defines our worth because our work is very important. And we've talked about how important it is. It is crucially important. But that only goes so far because when our work becomes more important to us than it actually is, it becomes what the great spiritual teachers throughout the ages have always called an idol. And an idol is anything that you have made ultimate or that you come to believe will give you life. And I don't know how it shows up for you. You could be like me. And it revealed itself to you when you were let go or you were fired and you realize that you had put way too much of your sense of self into this thing. Or maybe for you, it's the way that you go to work every day and you compete. You compete with your coworkers, you compete with other teams, you compete with other organizations, and there aren't very many organizations that aren't going to encourage you to compete. And that's how we find life, that's how we find that we're important, even if you are a stay-at-home mom, you compete. You get together with other moms and lie about your children. <laughs> well, I don't know. My, they just kind of potty train themselves. I don't know. Little Timmy was reading when he was two. <laughs> Quit lying to each other. <laughs> Maybe for you, it's just climbing. The next promotion the next rave, building, growing, developing to the next level, going to the next organization that's going to pay you so much more. Or maybe the way work shows up as an idol for you. It's just in the daily ongoing trappings of work, we begin to fudge and lie, shade, spin, miscalculate, work as an idol shows up in so many places and we should not be surprised by this because we spend so much of our time doing it. And in a consumer economy like ours, we actually have created language to help conceal the fact that we have made an idol of our work. And you've heard it. I was just doing my job. Well, it's my job. Well, that's just how business is done. This is how things run. This is the language that we use to say my work has become ultimate, and you should not question whether or not my work should be ultimate. It's the thing that I do that I have to do. But is it really? Some of you have been around the scriptures long enough to remember the Ten Commandments. And Ten Commandments are delivered to the Hebrews right after God has rescued them from Egyptian slavery. And they have seen all of the mighty acts of God. They have seen the plagues. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have seen God destroy the armies of the Egyptians. Just imagine what you would think, what you would feel at a moment like that. When things are at their peak, what would you expect the Hebrews to think What would you expect them to need? What do you think you would need? How do you think you would feel if God had just given you everything that you had ever wanted? I know what I would tell myself that I would think and feel. I think I know. What you would tell yourself that you thought and felt And I know that because we are all such fabulous liars. We think if somebody rescued us, if someone freed us, provided for us, we think that we would be forever grateful. But in reality, we are initially grateful, but ultimately forgetful. And the reason I know that when something really great is done for you that you are initially grateful, but ultimately forgetful is because I have children. And I have done things for these children that they had to have done. I cannot tell you the number of must have shoes and dresses and dad, can you bring me lunch and all of that. And you know what? It is thanks. And an hour later asking for something else Those dresses are on the floor in three days. There's a shoe here. And only God knows where the other shoe is. Because that's the way humans are. So God has for the first time in the story of his people, a worshiping community that he's inviting them to be a worshiping community. So Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives him these 10 commandments. He comes down and while he's been gone, they have built a golden calf. Go back read that story. They're not trying to replace God. They're trying to replace Moses. He gets really mad, breaks the tablets, has to go back up, bring them down again. And this out of all things, is what God says to his people. I am the eternal, your God. I led you out of Egypt and liberated you from lives of slavery and oppression. You are not to serve any other gods before me. You are not to make any idol or image of other gods. In fact, you are not to make an image of anything in the heavens above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath you are not to bow down and serve any image for I, the eternal, your God, am a jealous God. As for those who are not loyal to me, their children will endure the consequences of their sins for three or four generations. But for those who love me and keep my directives, their children will experience my loyal love for a thousand generations. So when God first talks to his people, he says remember who saved you there's not a rule there the first commandment doesn't actually begin with a commandment it begins with a guideline for living that says like i'm the one who saved you and one of the illusions that work offers us is that if we work hard enough or well enough or long enough, then our work will save us. Some of us grew up in poverty, and we made a covenant with our heart long ago. Maybe that we didn't even know that we made, that I'm going to work and work and work because I'm never going to be like that again. I'm never going to be in a situation where I don't have enough or we barely have enough. And so we work believing that work will save us. And there are others of us who we didn't get the attention that we needed or we look around the world and we want to be important and we feel like if we work hard enough, long enough on the right things, then that will make up for the loss of meaning that I pursue a purpose. But when we decide that our work gives us existential meaning or a sense of self or a way to provide for ourselves, when we are asking our work to save us, we have an idol. And in that idol, we are fundamentally trying to prove ourselves. And there are a lot of ways to do that. There are two primary ways to do it. Well, the first primary way is that we try to save ourselves through the eyes of others. And we could call this like the A's. And those show up as approval, acquisition, and accomplishment. Like if I can just get the approval of the right people, maybe it's a boss or a client, maybe it's a company, or maybe it's acquisition, that if I can earn enough, like I can have the right house, the right car, take the right trips, or accomplishment, like if I can just get to the top of the leaderboard, if I can be number one, if I can be the best, but then there's another way that we try to have our work save us, not through the eyes of other people, but through the eyes of God, and we might call those the Ds, dedication, devotion, and duty. If we can only work hard enough for God, or for humanity, or for some great cause, then our life will have meaning. Maybe it's just choosing a career that serves a particular people or underserved group of people. And we just put all of our effort, all of our work, all the time into serving those people. And all of those needs, approval and acquisition, accomplishment, dedication, devotion, duty, all of those are good things that so easily become ultimate things, but they are all driving for one thing. And that is so we will feel loved. That in any way, that I can just do enough, God or other people, or maybe both, will love me. And because we are hunting after this extraordinarily normal and needed thing, our work becomes easy to mishandle. And there are few things in your life that are going to compete for your allegiance, like your work. But that is ultimately a foolish pursuit. And God actually sneaks into the commandment, why it's a foolish pursuit. I want to remind you what he says. He says, "'You are not to make an, any idol or image of other gods. "'In fact, you are not to make an image of anything "'in the heavens above, on the earth below, "'or in the waters beneath. "'You are not to bow down and serve any image, "'for I, the eternal your God, am a jealous God. "'As for those who are not loyal to me, "'their children will endure the consequences of their sins "'for three or four generations.'" Now this is where a lot of people get lost. Because most of us, with our 21st century ears, hate the idea that God is a jealous God. Because when we think about jealousy, it conjures up for us all sorts of characteristics that we don't want in anybody. That controlling, toxic, domineering, and so this word in Hebrew that is translated jealousy, it's the word qana and it can also be translated zealous or passionate. It only occurs a few times in the entire First Testament. And it has this broad field of meaning. And if I were to sit down with Exodus in my free time and translate this from Hebrew to English, because you know, what else do I have to do? I would translate it unrelentingly faithful. That God says, I am unrelentingly faithful. Why do you have no other gods before me? Because I am unrelentingly faithful. And there's a question there for all of us. When it comes to our work, why would you be more faithful to something or someone who is going to be less faithful to you? Because you might not be fired one day but you will retire one day. You will move on one day and all of this will be in your past. And what you will be left with are all of the aspects of your life that you neglected for your work. So very often in my time as a pastor, I have had the same conversation and it's usually young men in their mid-30s, and they come to me and they are having an existential crisis. And it usually happens between like 32 and 37. And what's happened in their lives is they have done everything that they were told to do. They got the skills they needed, they got the education they needed, they got the training they needed. Most of the time, they have a spouse and children They've bought the house, they have cars, and they come to me with one question, and that question boils down to this. Is this as good as it gets? And it doesn't say anything about the rest of their lives, but they have been, we have been told since the time that we were little to orient your life around your work. Do good in school so you get into a good college. Do good in college so you can get into the right med school, graduate school, law school. Do good in all of those schools so you can get the good job. Kids walk into kindergarten and are trained to idolize their work. You are trained to idolize your work. And God says, if you put work or anything else above me, that is not going to go well for you. And it's not just not gonna go well for you. It's not gonna go well for your children, and your children's children, which sounds really mean of God. Because what we want to believe in our world is that I can do something over here and it not have any ripple effects over here. And God says, not only am I unrelentingly faithful, this world that I made, that world is pretty faithful too. And there are certain things that if you do them, There is this one aspect of life that we all know is true, that we want to go away, which is cause and effect. That if you do these things, there are certain predictable outcomes for those things. So when God says that this is not going to go well for you and your children or your children's children for three or four generations, God's not being mean. That's just the way the world works. Because some of us right now are in therapy because of something that someone did in the 60s. That a parent or a grandparent, a mistake they made, a trauma that they passed on. And God's not saying, "This is what I'm going to cause." God's saying, "This is the way it works." that when your life gets misaligned, then these are the very predictable outcomes, because there is a faithfulness just to the way the world works works and so when you choose what to be faithful to, choose something that will be faithful to you. So how would you get started if you had the sense that yeah, my life, my work has become an idol to me? Well, a couple of places to start. First is to remember that work is a trust. Like we talked about last week, that God has given you a set of gifts and skills. You were born at a particular time to a particular people. You live in a certain place. And God has given all of that to you to use for God's glory, not your glory. It is a trust. Like everything, like your family, your finances, it is a stewardship. And all stewardships are temporary, temporary and you're accountable for them. You walk into your work and you know that this is a trust that God has been given to me. And because it's a trust that comes from God, it would be silly to place this ahead of God. And when you get that, you will begin to see that work is rest. That from very early on in the story, there has been a rhythm of working and resting that you put in six days, and this is the rhythm, six days, and you rest one day. And you know why most of us need to actually rest in the middle of our work? Because we have forgotten that the world goes on without us. that you actually aren't the center of the world. And there's nothing that's happening in your workplace that will stop happening if you go away. And that's a beautiful thing, that it really doesn't all depend on you that you are actually not the provider for yourself or your family, that you are not the sustainer. And like all teachings of the scripture, the best thing you can do is not to just believe it, but just try it. Just try it and see what happens. Because one day you might be fired. And the company, the organization, the nonprofit that you work for, you will discover that they don't love you as much as you think they love you that when you become a deficit more than you are an asset, they will through tears tell you how sorry they are to let you go, but they will still let you go. So why would you be more faithful to someone or something that you already know will not be faithful to you And the word of the Lord is this: I will always be faithful to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecstasiahouston.org.